Good morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Pungani in Washington, in for James Batty. Today is Monday, July the 11th, and here are some of the stories we are covering for you. The United Nations Security Council met for an emergency session to address the renewed fighting in South Sudan. The fighting is said to have left over 100 people dead, raising fears that the country could slide back into a full-blown civil war. The United Nations mission in South Sudan is outraged at the resumption of violence in Juba today. This violence is severely impacting on the civilian population. That's the UN Special Representative to South Sudan, Ellen Margaret Law. And as African heads of state meet in Kigali for the African Union Summit, the biggest items on the agenda will be the selection of the next AU Commission chairperson and the unveiling of the highly anticipated African Union passport. I've been encouraged by the discussion on the benefits of this e-passport at the highest levels uh, in Africa. So hopefully this is something that you're going to get more and more uh, countries signing up to. Monde Muyango is the director of the Africa program at the Wilson Center here in Washington, D.C. Those stories coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. The United Nations Security Council met for an emergency session to address the renewed fighting in South Sudan. The fighting is said to have left over 100 people dead, raising fears that the country could slide back into a full-blown civil war. The announcement of the closed meeting Sunday in New York came alongside new reports of the fighting in the capital Juba between forces loyal to the government of President Salva Kiir and those backing first Vice President Riek Mashar. It also follows an urgent call for calm from the U.S. State Department and a statement from the U.N. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon calling on both sides to de-escalate hostilities. The U.N. Special Representative in South Sudan, Ellen Magrath Loh, in a statement today expressed outrage at the resumption of the fighting. The heavy fighting in Juba town, including in close proximity, to the UN compounds at UN House Diabol and Tomping has prompted approximately 1,000 internally displaced people to flee from the UN Protection of Civilian Site, PUC-1, into the UN compound at UN House. The heavy fighting downtown Cuba has forced hundreds of civilians to seek protection at UN Tomping Base. Witnesses said Sunday's fighting hit a U.N. encampment for displaced people for a second time in as many days and also targeted a rebel base in the capital. Separately, a spokesman for Mashar told Reuters that the vice president's residence had come under attack by Kir loyalists. U.N. Special Representative to South Sudan, Margaret Loh, also condemned what she said were attempts by both sides at preventing civilians from seeking protection. The United Nations is gravely concerned about reports that armed forces have prevented civilians from seeking protection. Both UN camps in Duba have sustained impacts from small arms and heavy weapons fire. The United Nations urges all parties to respect the sanctity of the United Nations and condemns any deliberate targeting of United Nations premises 
and its personnel. United Nations peacekeepers continue to protect displaced civilians at POC sites one and three for the safety and security of those displaced civilians the United Nations urges all parties to ensure the civilian nature of the POC sites. UN peacekeepers are also mobilized to protect UN bases in UN House and Tomping. As the Special Representative of the Secretary General, I have directly called on the leadership in South Sudan to immediately restrain their forces and to engage in dialogue to find a political solution to this crisis. My thoughts are with all South Sudanese who are suffering in these difficult moments. The latest fighting in Africa's newest nation was the first major outbreak of violence since Mashar was reappointed vice president in April. The World Food Program says 4.8 million South Sudanese are facing severe food shortages this year, with parts of the impoverished country on the brink of famine. It also says fighting has driven 2.4 million residents from their homes, while hundreds of thousands of others have fled the country as refugees. Meanwhile, South Sudanese Information Minister says President Salva Kiir has invited Vice President Dr. Riek Mashar and Second Vice President James Wani Eager to a meeting at the presidential palace that will take place later today. Michael McQuay tells VOA's Peter Cloty that the top government officials will discuss the latest clashes that left over 100 people dead and many injured. The suspicion is that the forces of Yemachar came from there with 21, 20 cars plus his car, 21. That was an abnormal force that was brought, and that was the immediate suspicion. That why should he come with all these forces by this time? Now the officer who came and caused all this confusion came there after in an ambulance. And he was told that you are not part of escort of the first vice president for today. Why did you come? But because this man came with maybe a preconceived plan, he immediately stopped one of the presidential guards of President Salfani. And as a result, a fighting immediately erupted within the, within the presidential palace and the surrounding of the presidential palace. This is what happened. So what happened to the soldier who started shooting a confusion? That, 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 that military officer who shot the presidential guard was immediately shot. He was the second person who died after that, that uh, soldier whom he shot. So what is the current situation there as we speak? Well, uh, after that, in fact, after that, President Salfa intervened, and uh, of course, the the, the 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 guards of the of the first vice president were repulsed, and they were all sent out, with most of them sustaining very heavy casualties. And thereafter, the Dr. Yek was left alone, and the president intervened and protected him, protected him, and ensured that he is taken back to his base uh, safely. And the president organized a special escort for him from his presidential guards to escort Yagmachar up to his residence. This was on the night of the 8th. You see, this was on the night of the 8th. Yesterday, the 9th, the day was okay. But this morning, his, the same 
the same SPLA IO forces, the opposition forces attacked, and let me repeat, attacked our position, the position of our, our checkpoint, a checkpoint in uh, in the western part of of, uh, of Juba, that is on on Juba Yei Road. They attacked it and captured it. This was a just. This happened at a time when the people were already in their churches. So uh, uh, very serious. The SPLA had to move in to to address that situation. So what are you going and to do? What are you going to do so about the situation the now? Is, the situation is under control. The government is in full control of Juba as of now, and uh, we will thereafter see what will be the way forward. But the forces of Riyamachar. That is, the I.O. forces had been in flagrant violation of the agreement. There is no doubt about that. And this is very clear. They are the ones who ignited the fighting in J1 in the presidential palace. And they are the same people who are now, who today, who this morning caused another problem. We are here to ensure that things move well. Peace prevails and the people of South Sudan are properly protected. And the government is under duty to protect the people of South Sudan. Is not allow the rebels to continue violating the agreement, causing unnecessary havoc to the people of South Sudan. Michael McQuay is the South Sudanese Information Minister. He spoke to VOS Peter Clotty from the capital, Juba. Meanwhile, the United States Embassy today issued a travel warning to its citizens. The updated travel warning cites ongoing fighting, intercommunal violence, and violent crime. The embassy has also called for the departure of non-emergency personnel from Juba. The online statement says violent crime is high throughout South Sudan, including in Juba, and due to the risk of carjacking and banditry, travel outside of Juba should be undertaken with a minimum of two vehicles and appropriate recovery and medical equipment in case of mechanical failure or other emergency. The session of the heads of state and government of the African Union is underway in the Rwandan capital, Chigali. During this year's meeting, the African Union is expected to elect a new chairperson and launch the highly anticipated African Union passport. Jill Craig has this report. As African heads of state meet amid the rolling hills of Kigali, the biggest item on the agenda will be the selection of the next AU Commission chairperson, the successor to Dr. Unko Zazana Dlamini Zuma of South Africa. Zuma will be stepping down after holding the position for the last four years. Alyssa Jobson is the advisor on African Union relations for the International Crisis Group. I think it's important to stress that who leads the African Union Commission matters, and it matters immensely. The chairperson is responsible for shaping the continent's economic, political and security agendas. And so it's really key that they have the best candidate possible in this job. There are three candidates. Two are current foreign ministers, one from Botswana and the other from Equatorial Guinea. The third candidate is Uganda's former vice president and a former UN special envoy for HIV AIDS in Africa. But J. Peter Fahm, the director of the Washington-based Africa Center at the Atlantic Council, cautions that Dlamini Zuma's successor may not come out of this summit, since a two-thirds majority vote is required. This time around with three relatively unknown candidates, it might well be the case that two-thirds majority is not achieved and there's additional campaigning and the possibility that other candidates might throw their hats in the ring. But the leadership turnover doesn't stop there. 
A new deputy chairperson and eight commissioners of the AU will also be selected, according to Monde Moyangwa, director of the Africa program at the Wilson Center. So you have a huge leadership transition occurring at the African Union. And so this is really going to determine which way does the African uh, Union go. The 54-nation bloc will be issuing its first e-passports, which will go to AU heads of state, permanent representatives of these states, and ministers of foreign affairs as part of a pilot program. The goal of the new passport is to ease restrictions in the movements of people, goods, and services across national lines. Which is a step, at least symbolically, in the direction of a, of a closer union, a pan-African identity. But the reality is that despite those aspirations and those ambitions, it's not the want of passports that causes Africans not to travel to each other's countries and to trade and do business with each other. It's the lack of transportation infrastructure that makes that. Uh, A passport won't do you any good if you don't have a road that will get you from one place to another or you don't have customs officials and customs clearing houses to expedite the the passage of goods. Moyangwa expresses a bit more optimism. I have been encouraged by the discussion on the benefits of this e-passport at the highest levels uh, in Africa. So hopefully this is something that you're going to get more and more uh, countries signing up to and hopefully becoming uh, a reality in the next few years. Back in January, an AU ministerial committee was asked to draw up a strategy on the International Criminal Court, giving special consideration to whether AU member countries should leave. The committee said that in order to prevent an African withdrawal from the court, the ICC should grant immunity from prosecution to sitting heads of state and other senior officials. That demand is at odds with many human rights activists, who say it would undermine the effectiveness of the court. Elise Kepler is the Associate Director of the International Justice Program at Human Rights Watch. Now, whether or not the conclusions and assessments of that committee are going to be considered at this AU summit is not clear, although it's important to note that we have seen again and again in the past few years that the issue of the ICC and AU attacks on the ICC regularly comes up very last minute, sometimes on the floor of the debate. Um, at the African Union Summit. So, you know, really, we don't know for sure now, but anything is possible. FOM doesn't believe the ICC issue will become a priority at this particular summit, because no sitting head of state other than President Omar al-Bashir of Sudan is under threat, although he says in the long term the issue will be important. In many respects, the collapse of the ICC case against the brother of Kenya, in a way, took a bit of the urgency out of the uh, African threat to withdraw from the ICC. South Sudan will likely be discussed. HRW's Kepler says the AU was tasked in the 2015 peace agreement to establish a hybrid court to prosecute crimes committed during the conflict because the country is not a part of the ICC. And we've been looking to the African Commission to get this process off the ground. I think a great outcome from the summit would be to see that there is encouragement for more progress. Last month, South Sudan's leadership called on the international community to reconsider setting up that tribunal in an op-ed published in the New York Times. The AU summit opens July 10th and culminates with the heads of state meeting on the 17th and 18th. Jill Craig, VOA News, Nairobi. The Human Rights Watch said that the Burundian intelligence services and police have tortured and ill-treated scores of suspected government opponents 
at their headquarters and in secret locations. However, the government continues to deny the reports. Moses Javiarimana reports from Burundi's capital, Bujumbura. The Human Rights Watch released a report that showed Burundi police, the ruling party youth wing, and the intelligence service officials have increasingly been responsible for torturing alleged opposition sympathizers while in custody. However, the Burundi Minister of Human Rights, Martin Nivyabandi, said that his country will hold accountable for any individual who violated human rights. The minister says there are cases of human rights violation, but they should leave the institutions in charge of handling those cases carry out the investigations. He says it's too high to point fingers at certain groups before the end of the investigation. The United Nations reported 651 cases of torture in Burundi between April 2015 and 2016. The Human Rights Watch said that for security reasons, it won't make public the names of the interviewees and other information. That the intelligence officials told some detainees they would be killed if they spoke about their treatment. The Burundi Minister of Human Rights says that the report had been generalized and had no specific cases. The Human Rights Watch report indicated that a Burundi ruling party youth wing in Bonirakure had also involved in the torture and ill treatment of those presumed to be opposition supporters. Nivyabandi says that the report about the Imbonerakure being armed, it is not true. He says that the Imbonerakure is a youth wing of the ruling party, like any other political party in the country that have a youth wing. The minister says, if there is any Mbonirakure who commits a crime, that he will be punished individually and according to the country's law. As protests against President Pierre Nkurunziza erupted last year, more than 500 people were killed and thousands have fled to the neighboring countries. Vital Shimirimana, a Burundian civil society leader who fled the country, said that the Burundi government had continued to target those who are critical to them. The, the crisis was triggered by the will of uh, Pierre Wuziza to remain in power against mm -hmm. the constitution and the, the Arusha peace agreement. Mm -hmm. And uh, today, the mm -hmm. uh, civil society and the opposition and the uh, uh, widely speaking, uh, many citizens mm -hmm. are victims mm -hmm. of uh, the crackdown organized by the security forces. All those who oppose or who are uh, or assumed to oppose the regime since April last year, the Human Rights Watch interviewed more than 40 tortured victims from nine provinces. The International Criminal Court announced a preliminary examination of situation in Burundi early this year. However, the Burundi government have threatened to reconsider its membership in the court if the principle of complementarity, which states that the national courts are empowered to investigate and punish allegations of crimes against humanity and genocide, and that the ICC will investigate only if the national courts are not able to, or if the United Nations Security Council asks for ICC participation. Moses Javiarimana, VOA Africa, Bujumbura. A variety of actors from the education sector will gather in Dakar today to discuss ways they can improve early childhood education in the region. The one-day conference comes at a time when Senegal is trying to implement strategies that are in line with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goal to ensure inclusive and quality education for all. Imagination Africa, a Dakar-based learning and innovation hub, is hosting the event. The organization's founder and director, Karima Grant, 
tells VOA's Ricky Shryok that they will focus on a few important areas of research at the conference, such as playful learning and mother tongue learning, to improve cognitive, social and emotional development for children. The idea is now is to bring these different actors together, a lot of their innovative projects together, and put the exchange together around uh, results for development has created a toolkit with a lot of these best proven strategies and the research that goes behind it. So to put them all together with these resources so that we can see what can actually happen, can connect people to each other, to resources to actually you know, really aim at improving the quality of the programs that we're doing. And when you say the improving the quality of the programs, I mean, those programs are aimed at improving primary school level and earlier education systems on the African continent as a whole? Yeah, but for us specifically, this continent, we're looking, I mean, there are many actors who are working in different countries, but primarily here in Senegal. We also have um, programs that are not necessarily formal you know, for instance, in the formal education system. So we have actors, for instance, the ISN, which is a social enterprise that's here, that does tremendous amount of work around parent education and mother-child engagement. We have organizations like ourselves, Imagination Africa, where we've been working since 2011 formally on playful learning and why playful learning is the best way for children to learn. So it's a really rich, rich opportunity to bring all these people together and to really have powerful conversations about where our challenges are, where our strengths are, what have we learned, and to really share. That was Karima Grant, founder and director of Imaginative Africa. She was speaking to Ricky Shryok from Dakar. In Malawi, gay rights remain a concern to human rights activists five years after the government suspended laws that criminalize homosexuality. Rights campaigners say that the moratorium on sodomy laws hasn't changed anything as gay people continue to live in hiding for fear of being harassed because of the negative and hostile attitude towards them. Gift Trapence is the executive director for the NGO, Center for the Development of People, which fights for rights of minority groups in Malawi. He tells reporter Lamek Masina that there is need for Malawi to enact laws that would help erase people's attitude on the issue. Uh, to say that is a moratorium so that uh, people can come out, I think that's not an issue because the moratorium is just a suspension of the laws. So... Uh, changing the law is not enough in terms of uh, making people uh, coming uh, out uh, because people can be beaten up, people can be uh, subjected to so many uh, victimizations. What is more important is to have the laws that are protective to citizens, but at the same time, the society attitude uh, on the issue. Uh, so what are the challenges uh, the homosexuals in the country are facing in the absence of the laws which you are talking about? Uh, if you look at the community at that we are talking here, you find that they have the HIV preference uh, more than the general uh, population, uh, actually, which is double. But we haven't really done, you know, uh, programs to make sure that people are able to protect themselves uh, or are able to receive services. Um, so that also impinges the right to health like anyone else because if you're not healthy it means that your right to life is also threatened so have you ever done any study uh, uh, establishing about the population uh, of uh, homosexuals in the country uh studies that we have done it's about men having sex with men uh, and the, the population was around 40,000 that uh, we got from that study but it was not 
for the entire uh, sexual minorities or lesbians, gays, bisexual, transgender, and intersex people. Having said that, I think for us, when we talk about human rights, it's not about the majority. Human rights is about protecting uh, human beings, even if it's one individual. And that's it for this Monday, July the 11th edition of Daybreak Africa. Join us again tomorrow for more African news and features right here on the English to Africa service of the Voice of America. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa crew, producer Nicole Beckford, I'm Jackson Bungani in Washington saying, have a nice day, Africa. Political conventions are a critical part of the American electoral process. Our job is to put the conventions, the candidates, and the issues into context for our listeners. Tune in to VOA's extensive coverage of the Republican and Democratic Party's conventions, starting July 18th on VOA.